Well, let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 14. The title of our message this morning is Welcome One Another. Welcome One Another. And our text is Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. And this section of Scripture is a new one now. So we've finished with Romans 13. We've finished with one theme, genuine love. And now beginning with Romans chapter 14, 1, all the way to Romans chapter 15, verse 7, the theme is going to change to one of unity. And specifically this morning, unity that is reflected by us welcoming one another. On the screen, you'll see Romans 14, 1a, and it says the following, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. And then skip all the way to the last verse of this new section, Romans 15.7, and it says the same thing. Therefore, welcome one another. So this entire segment that we'll be preaching the next couple of weeks is about unity, and a unity that is reflected by you and me welcoming one another. That's going to be a challenge because, as we'll see today, we all have differing, differing opinions. But God is saying to us this morning that in the midst of those differing opinions, differing opinions on non-essential things, we are to welcome one another. So let's pray here for a moment for the grace to hear this word. This is the most important word you will hear today, right here. Because it's God's word. So I I beg you, pay attention. I ask you, open your Bibles. Put your fingers on this word. Think them through with me as I am articulating them verbally. Ask God to open your heart up to these words. If you're here as a non-believer, you're just checking it out. This is the Bible. We believe this is God's word. It's sufficient for all that we need. It is God revealing himself to us. So I'm going to pray for you that God would open your heart and your mind up to this word. And all of our hearts and minds up, up to this word that we might learn from God how to welcome one another. So let's pray. Lord, would you open up our hearts and minds to your word? Would you open my mouth to articulate your word the way you want it? Lord, build your church. Lord, save your elect. Lord, care for your people. You're the good shepherd. I pray today as your under shepherd. You would give me the grace to serve and care for your people as I preach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read it together, shall we? Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. 
while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us, will give an account of himself to God. One of my very favorite movies is entitled Remember the Titans. And reading from the online summary of that movie, quote, In sight of the Washington Monument, over the river in the nation's capital, one black and one white school are closed, and the students are sent to T.C. Williams High School under federal mandate to integrate the year as seen through the eyes of the football team where the man hired to coach the black school is made head coach over the highly successful white coach based on the actual events of 1971 the team becomes the unifying symbol of the community as the boys and the adults learn to depend on and trust each other what interested me the most about the movie was the subplot involving the star player of the black school, Julius Campbell, and the star player of the white school, Gary Bertier, depicted in this photo by actors Wood Harris and Ryan Hurst, respectively. Each was a linebacker, each was the leader of his team, and each despised the other. They were so different. Different race, different community, different neighborhood, different schools, different cultures. It wasn't until they laid down their differences to welcome one another and join together to form the most fearsome defense in the county that the team actually came together. And they welcomed each other eventually based on their love for football and motivated by their desire to win. And when their teammates saw them welcome each other, they in turn welcomed one another and the team came together. God calls us, friends, to welcome one another. We're so different, maybe even more different than Gary Bertier and Julius Campbell depicted it in this photo. We have different languages in this church, different nations in this church, different races in this church, different socioeconomic status in this church, different customs in this church. But God calls us to welcome one another based not on our love of a game, nor motivated by our desire to win or self-glory, but based on his love for us and motivated by his glory, his purpose. You see, friends, the main point of this passage, God's claim on our lives as a church in this text is the following. Welcome one another as God has welcomed us. Welcome one another as God has welcomed us. This is the exhortation we see in the first three verses. Look at them. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. 
Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. The verb translated welcome in verse 1 has a range of meaning that includes to receive or accept someone. Not just tolerate them, but welcome them gladly into one circle of friends. Even treating them like family. Forging intimate fellowship that is appropriate for God's people. A fellowship that is marked by warmth and kindness and the genuine love we just learned about. We exhibited that kind of fellowship this last weekend in Dinner for Eight. It's Dinner for Eight kind of fellowship where we invite each other into our homes, welcome each other into our lives. I remember in the movie, uh, Remember the Titans, that the day that Gary Bertier and Julius Campbell decided to welcome one another, they were actually playing in an intense scrimmage, a practice. It was right after the, the picture you saw on the screen where they were so angry at each other, they were ready to fight. So right after that scene, they were actually scrimmaging. They were both on the defense. And at one point, and it was a nighttime scrimmage, and the team was tired. And at one point, Gary Bertier comes up to Julius Campbell and just hits him on the shoulder pads and shouts out, Left side! You see, Gary Bertier was the left side linebacker, what's called the weak side linebacker. And everything stopped in the practice. Julius Campbell kind of looked at him and says, are you picking a fight? You could just see him kind of thinking. And then he, he got it. And he shot back and hit him in the shoulder pads. Strong side! Because Julius Campbell played on the right side or the strong side. And then for a couple of minutes, back and forth in this insane competitive, as only guys can do on the football field, they just kept hitting each other. Left side! Strong side! Left side! Strong side! And all of a sudden, the team realized what was going on, and it broke the tension. They realized they just welcomed each other. And everybody started hitting each other and shouting and screaming. And that night, that team came together because their leaders welcomed one another. Their leaders welcomed one another. And they didn't just welcome each other as players on the field. They didn't just tolerate each other as the left side and strong side linebackers. No. As the movie depicts, they went on and they gladly accepted each other in their homes, in their lives, in their communities. They actually became the best of friends. And it's a true story. These guys really do exist. I'll never forget this one scene when Julius Campbell goes to visit Gary Bertier in his home. He is walking in Bertier's community, which is upscale, very different from his community. Basically an all-white community. And he walks up to Gary Bertier's door, up to the porch there. And he knocks on the door. And I'll never forget this. When Gary Bertier's little mom kind of answers the doors and com- comes out, Julius Campbell just gives her a big hug and lifts her up and says, Hi! She's just like shocked. She went on to embrace Julius Campbell as a son. These guys came together. They welcomed each other in the true sense of the word, like it says here. They didn't just tolerate each other. And it was hard for them. Because there are such great differences between them. But their differences, church, is nothing compared to the differences that Paul was addressing in the church, the first century church at Rome. The weak side, or the weak here, were the Jewish Christians. They were weak with respect to their faith in Christ, not faith in Christ, but they were weak in trying to understand how their faith in Christ related to their Jewish 
background or specifically to the Old Testament covenant represented by the dietary laws, the laws of special days of observance. They were trying to figure out and wrestle with, what is my faith in Christ who fulfills the law? How does that impact on my conscience? Because for thousands of years, we've obeyed certain laws of what you can and cannot eat. Therefore, they were afraid to eat any meat at all. They were vegetarians, not for health issues, not because they're trying to lose weight, because they were afraid if they ate non-kosher food, that would break the covenant. But they kind of knew that they had a new covenant in Christ. As a matter of fact, they knew what Paul had written in Romans. They knew the theme of Romans, that we're to live by faith in the gospel. Read with me. Read me, uh, with me on the screen, Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the Jewish Christians said, yeah, I believe that. I'm a Jew. I believed. But it was verse 17 that they were having a hard time with. For in it, the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live By faith. They were trying to figure out what it looks like to live by faith in Jesus Christ as a Jewish Christian. And they were struggling with it. Did it mean that they no longer had to observe the Jewish dietary laws? You've got to understand they've been doing that for thousands of years or at least 1,500 years. Did it mean that their consciences were free now not to observe the certain feast days of Israel? I mean, the temple was still in existence at this time. What did it mean when it came to buying meat that perhaps had been sacrificed to an idol earlier, but now is being sold at a good cost in the market? They they were trying to wrestle through it. And the strong side, the strong in 14.1-3, were the Gentile Christians. They knew nothing of the law. They had not been born under the law. They knew nothing of the Old Testament covenant. They were pagans. All they knew was the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And their consciences were free to eat whatever was put in front of them. And these two groups quarreled. They quarreled over these differing opinions. The very thing that God told them not to do in the previous chapter. Remember? We preached it last week. Look at 13.13. Because we are now in Christ, because Christ has come, God says this in 13.13, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. He wrote that, I think, anticipating what he was going to write here in chapter 14. See, chapter 14, verse 3, reveals the ugly face of their quarreling. Actually, it reveals the ugly face of our quarreling as well when we fight, maybe over not these exact issues, but other opinions. And that ugly face is a face of the Gentile Christians despising their Jewish Christian brethren, condescendingly looking down on them for not being strong enough in their faith in Christ to eat meat. And the ugly face of their quarreling looked like the Jewish Christians judging their Gentile Christian brethren, self-righteously calling them covenant breakers and unclean sinners, I knew it, for eating non-kosher foods. And all this, friends, over something that is non-essential. For while there are opinions, there are opinions that are very essential. There are some opinions that are absolutely essential. We have to insist on agreement on those opinions. Like, is Jesus Christ God? Yes. How is one saved? By faith alone, in Christ alone, through God's grace alone. 
Opinions about who God is. He is one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oh yes, we must insist on agreement there, but there are other opinions that are not essential. In fact, that word translated opinions there in verse 1, you see it at the end of verse 1? It has a range of meaning that can include doubtful points, disputable matters, disputable matters, things that are not essential, or things that aren't as clear in Scripture. There may be other ways to interpret them. There's no other way to interpret it. Jesus said, I am God. Just read that this morning in my quiet time, John 5. There's no way to interpret, any other way to interpret that we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. No, but these are now things that are disputable matters. It can kind of go either way. Things like mode of baptism. Things like mode of church government. Things like how do the gifts of the Spirit are practiced in a church. Things like, is it okay for me to drink alcohol? See, the Bible's clear, you can't get drunk, but what about alcohol? Can I, can I drink alcohol? Things like, can I dance? Things like, what kind of movies do I go to? Am I permitted to go to? These are debatable matters. The, the scriptures aren't as clear about them. And we must distinguish between these essential things and these debatable matters, these opinions, these non-essential things. And, 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 and so how one lives by faith in Christ One is trying to work that out. And what God says is he says, I exhort you to gospel unity. Though our differences exist, as you work through these debatable matters, it is not helpful if you have the freedom of conscience to do something, to despise your brother and to look down on them condescendingly and says, what's wrong with you, man? We're justified by faith alone and Christ alone by grace alone. Don't be such a legalist. That's not helpful. And it's not helpful for the one who doesn't do it to self-righteously judge that one and says, well, if you were a real Christian, you wouldn't do that. This is not helpful. Because God says, look, welcome one another. By the way, I think Paul was a Jew who properly understood the gospel. And I do think that some of the Jewish Christians were probably not understanding fully the implications of their faith in Christ. And I think perhaps these Jewish Christians, they were not able to accept for themselves the truth that their faith in Christ implies liberation from certain Old Testament and Jewish ritual requirements. I think Paul probably believed that. But notice he doesn't say that here. He tells them both to cut it out. He tells them both in these disputable matters. As I'm trying to walk out my faith in Christ, man, welcome me, help me. I'm trying. It may not let me do the things you do, or it may let me do things that you can't do by your conscience, but let's not despise and judge each other. Here's Here's the early application of this message. God calls us to welcome or accept one another without passing judgment or despising one another on disputable matters. Here's a question for you as you listen to the rest of this message. Who are the weak that you might be tempted to despise? Who are those in this church? Because even though we're not as different as the Jews and Gentiles were in Rome, we're still pretty different, especially in this church. We're very different, very different. You tell a a Hispanic, especially a Cuban in Miami, that the Bible says they can't dance, they'll look at you like you have three eyes. I've been dancing with my grandmother since I was five, getting ready for a quinceanera. What? 
What does that have to do with my faith in Christ? But, but that Cuban man dare not look down on the person that perhaps grew up where dancing was seen as a sin. Dare not despise them. And the person who sees maybe dancing as a sin, dare not judge that other person. So who are you tempted? Who are the weak that you might be tempted to look down on and despise and say, but if you just trusted Christ and weren't such a legalist, you could, be, you could do that. Or who are you or who are the strong for you who you would be tempted to judge and say, you know what? Those guys, they're barely even Christians. Can you believe what they do? We went over there last night. You know what they were drinking? Who would that be for you? And are you willing to allow God to soften your heart so that you might welcome them? Not just tolerate them, but welcome them into your lives, into your social circles, into your homes, ultimately into your hearts with the warmth and kindness of genuine love that you would welcome them, as it says in verse 3, the way God welcomed you. Point one, God welcomed us. God has welcomed us. This is the gospel truth laid out in plain detail in the first 11 chapters of Romans, isn't it? Are you aware of this fact that God the Father rejected Jesus Christ, that he might accept you? In the face of that, we must never, ever reject one another over these disputable matters. It does not jive with the gospel. It's all over the book of Romans, but one I've chosen for you, Romans 5, 10, and 11, up on the screen. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now been reconciled. Friends, to be reconciled is that God welcomes us into his fellowship. Just pause and enjoy that for a moment. And then let it melt your heart because our attitudes toward one another should reflect God's attitudes toward them. Did God welcome them back in? Did God reconcile them? Then how could we reject them? Even subtly, how can we despise them? How could we judge them? Point two, since God has welcomed us, welcome one another. Welcome one another. Now in verses four to 12, Paul God, through Paul, is going to give us the theological foundations for why we are to welcome one another. The first reason comes in the form of a rhetorical question. Look at chapter 4, excuse me, verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. We are to welcome one another. Why? First bullet point, because we don't judge another's servant. Paul presses in to the one who abstains, that Jewish Christian, and gives him a reason not to judge the one who eats, the Gentile Christian, with these words. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Kind of echoes what he says to the Jews back in chapter 2. This rhetorical question is asked with the assumed response, you are no one to judge the servant of another because it is before his own master and not you that he stands. See, God is able to make him stand. Therefore, we must never come between Christ and a Christian. Who are we to do that? 
It is God that enables him to stand. And so let that sink into your mind and heart this morning. Let the implications of that sinking first for you, then we'll apply it to how you treat others. But oh friends, listen, listen, God's the one that's going to enable you to stand on that day before him. One of my very favorite scriptures is Jude 24 and 25. I love this passage. Now to him who is able to keep you, and this is reading out of the New American Standard version. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in his presence, in the presence of his glory. No man can see God and live. No man can stand before God's presence. Every time God's glory shines in the, in the Bible, men are hitting, their, hitting the ground, burying their face in the earth and crying out, don't kill me. But we have confidence in Christ who is enabling us to stand in the presence of his glory. Listen, not just stand there trembling with shame and seeing our nakedness and worrying if we're going to die. No, look what it says, blameless. And with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forevermore. And let's all say it together. Amen. (laughs) The implications of that passage are firstly to warm our souls this rainy Sunday morning. But secondly, How dare we judge the servant of another? He's the one that makes him stand. He's the one that keeps him from falling. He's the one before whom that person stands. Not us. Not us. Not us. What what I love about this section here, that we don't judge another servant, is that he then goes into matters of conscience. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. One person esteems one day is better than another. That's a Jewish Christian who's thinking that he needs to observe the three great feasts, that he needs to observe the Sabbath exactly as it's outlined in the Old Testament. While another esteems all days alike. That's the Gentile Christian. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So see, Paul here is not advocating some mindless behavior. Paul isn't saying live and let live. No, Paul is not even advocating unexamined traditions. No, Paul is saying think it out carefully. But as give your friend a chance to think it out carefully. Don't despise him or judge him just because he comes up with a different conclusion than you do on disputable matters. If he holds it with a clear conscience based on God's word, if he thinks it through, if he's fully convinced in his own mind, don't despise or judge him. Verse 6, the one who observes the day, observe it, observes it in honor of the Lord. Three times we're going to see this phrase, in honor of the Lord here. The one who eats... The Gentile Christian eats in honor of the Lord. There it is, second time. Since he gives thanks to God, we're going to see give thanks to God twice here. While the one who abstains from eating abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So what is he saying here? What we have here are are Christians that are honestly trying to walk out their discipleship with Christ. They're honestly trying to figure out what it looks like to live by faith in Christ alone when it comes to these debatable issues. What are the gospel implications of living by faith in Christ? And as they're doing that, remember, they're doing it to honor the Lord, just like you're doing it to honor the Lord. And if, you're not, if you can't honor the Lord doing it, then why are you doing it? That's a good question. Second bullet point. We welcome one another. Why? Because we belong to the Lord. Verses 7 through 9 are powerful. They rehearse Christ's death and resurrection. Look at them with me. 
For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, verse 8, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, here we go, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. This is, this is Paul's main point in this text. We dare not despise nor judge one another because we don't belong to just anyone. We don't, even, we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to the Lord. In fact, Christ's death and resurrection is listed here by Paul to establish his lordship over all. Jesus is Lord of all. We must recognize that. Whatever we do, we do for the Lord. I no longer live for my own opinion. So what I interpret scripture to say I can drink wine. And you don't. I don't vault my opinion over yours. Are you working it out honestly in the scriptures? Are you uh, doing it to honor the Lord? Yes. Well, so am I. Great. Let's walk together. We're different. Let's walk together. Fill in many other things like that. Church government, by the way. Southern Baptist, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, those that preach the gospel, all saved, all believers, all have different forms of church government. Modes of baptism is another. Our opinion should not be allowed to divide one another in these non-essential matters because I no longer live for myself, but I live for him who died for me. I hear the echoes of 2 Corinthians 5. In verses 7 to 9 here, one of my favorite scriptures, 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ controls us, not my opinion, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Verse 15. 2 Corinthians 5, there we go, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Verse 15. And he died on behalf of all in order that those who live, here we go, might live no longer to themselves, to their opinions, to their ways on these disputable matters, but to the one who died on their behalf. Friends, we belong to the Lord. That's why we welcome one another. And, next bullet point, we belong to one another. We belong to one another. Look at verse 10a. Paul brings home this exhortation after he's laid out this theological explanation in verses 4 to 9. He brings home this exhortation. He's looking at these Jewish Christians and these Gentile Christians and he's having a family meeting and he's looking at them going from face to face. And listen to what he says to them in verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Looking at the Jewish Christian. Then he looks at the Gentile Christian. Or you, why do you despise your brother? I could just see him. He's just looking at him back and forth. And he's saying, hey, don't despise your brother. Hey, don't judge your brother, your family, your brothers and sisters in Christ, as are we, church. And final final bullet point. We welcome one another because we will all give an account of ourselves to God. Verses 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? Here we go. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Then Paul quotes Isaiah 45, 23. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. And then the conclusion. So then, each of us will give an account of himself 
to God. And actually, the first part of 13 is a bridge between this message this morning and the message Jim will preach next Sunday. Therefore, do not, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another. Here's the point. We must stop giving each other that despising, contemptful smile, strong ones. Or we must stop giving each other that frown of condemning judgment, weak ones, because we will all stand before God, the judgment seat of God. By the way, Paul may have been referring here to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, judge not that you not be judged. Wait a second now. Does that mean that I suspend my discernment? No, that's not what Jesus meant by that. Does that mean that I suspend my critical faculties? Nope, that's not what Jesus meant by that. Here's what Jesus meant by that. He forbade what is called a censorious judgment. Censorious. Let me define that word for you. It's a good word. Censorious. C-E-N-S-O-R-I-O-U-S. Censorious judgment means that I judge you in an uncharitable manner. It means I think the very worst of you. It means every time you smile, I assume you're smiling because you're mocking me in your heart. It means every time I look at you, I think you're up to something no good. It means to think evil of you, putting the worst possible spin on your action or inaction. Worst possible spin on your motivation. Worst possible spin on your character. Worst possible spin on your abilities. And it's a blatant violation of genuine love. Because love does what? Believes the best. It doesn't suspend my critical discernment. I'm just a discerning person now. Okay, you may be. You probably are. But have you crossed over into a censorious discernment? Censorious judgment. That's what Jesus is talking about. Because the moment we do that, the moment we cross over and we start censoriously, condemningly, thinking the worst of that person, not knowing anything else, always assuming they're up to no good, always thinking, you know what, that guy can never do anything right. And by the way, you may be right about your discernment in that particular matter. Just like Paul, I think, agreed with the Gentile Christians that the Jewish Christians weren't understanding the implications of faith in Christ when it came to the law on some of these matters. I think Paul agreed with them, but that's not what Paul addressed here. That wasn't his primary objective. Listen carefully. He said to them, stop despising them. And here's why. Because you, oh Gentile Christian, you, oh strong side linebacker, you are trying to get into God's chair. You're trying to crawl up into God's throne here. That, that is what we do when we practice that kind of censorious judgment. You can do it with someone in this church. They start laughing right when they see you from across the distance and you're thinking, they must just told a joke about me and they're mocking me. You can do that with a pastor. They can never do anything right. You can do that with your spouse, with your children. You assume the worst. And friends, I tell you this with tears in my eyes. I'm a a serial offender here. This is one of my great weaknesses. It's, it's, It's the dark side of leadership. And for those of you who are really discerning leaders, it's the really dark side of discerning leadership. You prophetic types, it's the dark side of the gift of discernment. It's when the gift of discernment turns into the gift of suspicion. Unredeemable. And the scripture that I have been 
reading and memorizing and asking God to show me is James 4, 11 to 12. Because James 4, 11 to 12 shows me exactly what I'm doing. It tells me I'm jumping up on God's throne. It says the following on the screen. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, and I believe it's censorious judgment that James is speaking of here, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Wow, that's pretty strong. But if you judge the law, you are no, not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Go back to verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Friends, let's get off of God's throne. Let's find our place where it truly is. Verse 12, where's our place, friends? Standing in front of the throne. Giving an account of ourselves to God on that judgment day. And here's the good news. Because we know the truth of Jude 24 and 25. If you can find it, put it back up, please, Tiffany. Because this truth is ours. Because we believe this. Because we believe this. And we say now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to make you stand in his presence. In the presence of his joy. Blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Because we know that we will stand before that throne and, yes, give an account for our lives, but we'll stand blameless and with great joy. Because we know that. And remember that. Let us welcome one another as God has welcomed us. Here's the appeal. Here's the appeal. Welcome one another as God has welcomed you. When Gary Bertier and Julius Campbell welcomed each other and came together, they also brought together a divided, a racially divided community in Northern Virginia. And in the process, they forged an undefeated season. It's a great story, true story, and a state championship. What I haven't told you is that Gary Bertier, the white linebacker, was actually paralyzed in a tragic traffic accident on the night they won the regional championship. Gary Bertier never played in the state championship game. But from the night of that accident, Julius Campbell was right by his side. Gary Bertier's mom wept in Julius Campbell's arms. And Julius urged Gary on to recovery. And though Gary never gained the use of his legs, he was paralyzed from the waist down. A few years later, Gary Bertier competed in the Paralympics, winning a gold medal in the shot put. And then 10 years later, when Gary Bertier was tragically killed in another traffic accident, this time at the hands of a drunk driver, the entire team, led by Julius Campbell, gathered at his funeral and honored him. These men, they were titans in the true sense of the word. But, oh, friends, may we be titans in the faith, big enough to welcome one another in the face of our differences, even as God has welcomed us. Let us pray. Worship team, please join me up here. Lord, I pray for your grace to descend upon us and that we would be more aware of the fact that on that final day before the judgment seat, you will make us and enable us, Lord, to stand in the presence of your glory, blameless with great joy, not trembling on the back row, but standing on the front row saying, I'm here by the blood of Jesus and I am blameless by his sacrifice and I have the joy of the Lord. And because you've welcomed us that way, Father, may we welcome one another 
Lord, if there are those here that need to repent of despising others, if there are some here in this church that say, you know what, in my heart I've despised that person. I've not really wanted to get close to them. I've kept them at an arm's distance. I haven't really pursued them relationally. Or I've judged that person. I don't want to be around them unless they contaminate my children. We've not welcomed each other. We've forgotten the implications of the gospel and how you welcomed us when we had nothing, no covenant, no family, no hope, no promise, and you welcomed us in Christ. May the gospel produce a church that welcomes one another so we can turn and offer the world the welcoming message of Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.